Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We're going to start reading as we do each week uh, in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and I'll make a couple of comments, and then we'll go into the points for today. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Remarkable statement. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now that verse should remind you of what we read in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, it said, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Continuing to read in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now this is the first reference that we have of 23 references to Barnabas in the book of Acts. And as you keep seeing Barnabas pop up in different places, note the characteristics of his life. And in this case here, we're seeing of his commitment and of his generosity. But Barnabas plays a very significant role in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So here's the first mention or reference to Barnabas. Continuing to read now in chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This morning, 
I want to ask you three questions. Each one of these questions may make you a little concerned about where I'm going. Or it may make you a little nervous about how you should answer them. Uh, what's the right answer? So to allay all your fears in advance and to ensure that you're listening attentively without any kind of concerns in your mind, let me tell you up front that the answer to each one of the questions is no. All right? So now you're now you can be at rest, all right? You're not, you're not wondering. No, no nervousness. So here's question number one. Can the government or the church meet every physical need? No. In very practical terms, we understand that no human institution or even the body of Christ world, worldwide can meet all the physical needs of the world. We understand that even on a national, state, city, or local neighborhood level, it is impossible to meet the need, meet every physical need for shelter, food, clothing, transportation, healthcare, utilities. You add into that jobs, education, training, assistance for people in need, and you have a significantly compounded challenge, right? And there are many reasons for why poverty, need, and lack remain in the world today. But the most fundamental reason that these things are there around us is that we live in a sinful world where, as Genesis 6-5 says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That was God's assessment right before he judged the world through the flood. And although God is withholding his final judgment on the world today, the evil thoughts of human hearts that result in injustice, corruption, self-indulgent waste, all of those things remain in the world. And by the way, these things disproportionately impact people who are poor. Those who are not, those who are not needy in the same way can sort of manage even if these things are going on. But those who are poor, those who are in need, those who are disenfranchised, they are more severely impacted when these things happen. Right? And so, and, 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 and by the way, even in, even in this passage we just read in Acts chapter 4, you must remember that the early church, they were able to meet, when it says they met every need, there was no needy person, it uses those kinds of terms. They were able to meet the needs of a specific group of people for a specific period of time. Because very soon after this, later in the book of Acts itself, we will see that there were other needs that arose in the church including the fact that there was a severe famine in Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem suffered and other believers in other places took up collections to help the believers in Jerusalem. So it's not that the church in Jerusalem or the believers, the body of believers, was able to meet every need for every person for all time. This particular period of time, they were able to do that. Right? They shared and did these things. So when you think about all of that and you say, oh, 
needs that are so huge and all these things that are happening, it sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? And it sounds like, ah, uh, you know, what can we do? And you can either say, well, we can't do much at all, or you just sort of give up. Now, in John chapter 12, when Mary poured an expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, and Judas, Judas Iscariot, chastises her for wasting money. And he says, oh, this money could have been given to the poor. This is a one, one year's wage that you just you know, spent like this. You could have given this money to the poor. Jesus says, Jesus responds back, and this is in John chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, leave, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, when you read that verse, and you just consider that phrase that Jesus uses, some have suggested that what Jesus is saying is, you'll always have poverty. There'll always be people in need. There's nothing you can do about it. It'll always remain. But you know, as we've seen in numerous other references, when Jesus says, most of what Jesus says, or many of the things that Jesus says, they're direct reference to some scripture in the Old Testament. And in this case, again, Jesus is making, he's not just making a random statement. He's making a direct reference to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 through 11. Listen to this whole section. There need be no poor people among you, for in the land your God, the, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus wasn't saying, since there'll always be poverty, there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus was actually saying, be as generous and open-handed as possible to the poor. Give. He's telling this specifically to the nation of Israel, to the children of Israel, but he's telling them to do something and says, I want you to notice, I want you to pay attention to the people who are in need. Right? But here, I, as we read through that Scripture. I want you to notice what the agency, what is the channel, what is the means by which this, which this assistance is given. It is when a group of people obey the Lord and are careful to follow his commands, 
when they are blessed by the Lord and don't consume on themselves what they get, when they are caring for others and are willingly generous, it is then that the poor can be helped. Right? It's not, it is through that group of people who are obeying the Lord that the poor are helped. There are many government and non-government agencies around the world whose charter is to assist the poor or those in need, right? Famines or floods or crisis, and there are many organizations that respond. But secular governments and agencies are not explicitly trying to obey God's commands to help the poor. The ones who should be or who are seeking to obey the commands of God are the ones who call him Lord and Master. So we should expect the church, the body of Christ, to be committed in this way to what God has said. We should be obeying God and led by the Spirit, following his direction to do all that we can to help those in need. We can certainly do that individually, but we can do that even more effectively as a church. So in a local church, as we contribute into a common fund, we multiply what we could do individually so that collectively we're able to support missionaries, we care for and educate children, we generate income, there's assistance that is provided. So through the channel of the church, there is a way in which we're able to impact and benefit others. That's what God the Lord has asked us to do. So each local church does what it can. And local churches in the region can partner together and serve the community. The church worldwide can be, it needs to be, the channel of God's blessing to those in need. The church is called to that. So, that brings us to question number two. You remember the answers. Should you sell everything you have and give the money to the church? Everybody says, oh, no, no, no. We know the answer to that one. Should you sell everything you have and give the money to the church? Doesn't it sound like that's what's happening? Here's where we come to an important principle in the word of God. Some of the actions that are described in the Bible, some of the actions taken by individuals or the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, or the church, as they are recorded throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, these are actions that are descriptive, not prescriptive. They're describing what they did. They're not prescribing what we should do. And you have to make a distinction. So some actions provide a specific example of what we, sh what we should also do, and they establish a precedent. There's a method. There's a rule. There's an observance of some kind. Some of these actions are mentioned in that way, and those are things that we have to do ourselves. But some actions are a record of what happened so that we can learn from it, we can glean truth, and we can understand the principle, the biblical truth and principle 
without doing exactly the same action. Right? And so we have to be careful that we don't read into certain actions what those descriptions or accounts are saying. We don't read more into it than what's there. And when we read this passage in Acts, from Acts 2 all the way through Acts 5, you know, when we read these kinds of passages, what tends to happen is we think about what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Luke 18.22. Right? Remember when we looked at that chapter, when we looked at the Gospel of Luke, we came across the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, oh, what should I do? And Jesus says, you know, obey the law, the commands, you know, love the Lord, love people, you know, he's, he's explaining. And this man says, oh, I've kept all those things since my youth, since I was a child, right? I've done these things. And then Jesus says to him in Luke chapter 18, verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow what happened? The rich young ruler left very sad. Now, in that situation, Jesus was speaking specifically to the condition of his heart because his possessions and his wealth had become more important than following Jesus. Even though he's coming to Jesus and asking a question and expressing desire and there is a stirring within him to try to respond to God, he's not willing to give up those things that he has amassed. And so Jesus gets to the heart of that matter. But that is not a rule. Jesus is not saying to every single person, sell everything that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. Now, by the way, for those of you who are here, those of you who are listening, if God says that to you, and you know it's the Lord doing it, obey, go ahead, do it. But in general, right, and in the statement that we would make here, God is not saying to every single person, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. He's saying, let your priorities be right. These things should not have your heart. God should have your heart. And so he's telling this to the rich man and he's expressing something that is very clear and specific. But what we may do is we may read this and then we may assume that the way that we have to give to the poor is to give all. And well, I can't give all, so then I won't give any. That's sort of the way that we think about it, right? And if you look at Acts 2 and Acts 4 and look at what was described there, we see that the believers who had land and possessions did sell at least some of what they had to help those in need. But they continued to have houses and income and land, right? They, they helped as they were able or as they were led of the Lord. They were led by the Lord in their living so that they could be led by the Lord in their giving. That's what they were doing. They weren't, you know, feeling pressure. They weren't, you know, going through some sort of obligation. They weren't liquidating everything and saying, oh, okay, and now I don't have anything. Okay, you know. no, it's not like that. They're being led by the Lord in their living so that they can be led by the Lord in their giving. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, God tells the children of Israel who are going into captivity and exile, he speaks to them about what they should do. Now remember, these are, these are children of Israel who have been judged because they did not walk in the ways of the Lord. God says, I will bring 
the nation of Babylon, they will capture you, they will run, you know, overthrow you, and they will take you captive into Babylon, and you will be in exile for 70 years. Now here's what he says to them about this exile period. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, he says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The Bible speaks of us as sojourners in the world. The Bible speaks of us as being pilgrims in this land, right? in a strange and foreign land, and speaks of us being in this earth, not because we are meant for the earth as such, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are here temporarily, and yet while we are here, we are called to build our houses, plant those fields, eat the berries, you know, marry, have children, do all of that, and prosper, and pray for the prosperity of the city that you live in. So that as the Lord blesses, as the Lord gives, as the Lord is lifting you up, even when you're in the middle of some punishment. I mean, the children of Israel were in exile. And he says, you do this, you prosper, and I will be the one that gives you that increase. You increase, because through that, I will bless others. I will touch other people's lives. So when we talk about all of these things that we want to apply, the call of God is to prosper and have the resources that you can use to help others. The call of God is to be a good steward, a faithful manager of the Lord's resources. We don't, we don't think of it as our own. We are stewards, managers of God's resources. And as Peter said to Ananias in verse 4 of the passage we read, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The Bible is not calling for the abolishing of personal property or socialistic or communistic sort of centralization of all resources. Right? And, uh, you know, bring it to the church and we'll decide, we'll distribute it. You know, bring it to the government, we'll distribute it. It's not, that, that's not what the Bible is calling for. It is speaking about voluntary giving that is motivated by just and fair treatment of others. It is, it is speaking about giving that is motivated by compassion and care, by God's love. These are the principles that we learn from these chapters, from Acts chapter 2 and 4 and 5, and what we want to apply for ourselves. So I've spoken at uh, other times about giving and why the local church and what we should do and how we should think about it and so on. So I'm not repeating those points today, but what I want to emphasize today is that as you give to the church to enable the work of God, to enable the blessing of others, most importantly, here's what you need to do with your giving. Here's what needs to accompany your giving. Pray that we will all give generously. 
Pray for the leadership of the church. Pray for godly decisions. Pray that the right opportunities are known. Pray for discernment. Pray for a heart of stewardship and not an attitude of ownership. Pray for sound governance and management of every resource. Pray for the favor and blessing of God on the investments that God directs us to. Pray for increase. Pray for abundant fruit to be born. Pray for true needs to be met. Because it's not just, okay, here, here's my $10. It's I give as the Lord directs me. I give because he has called me to do this. And I give to the church so that through this channel, we are able to impact and touch the lives of many. But I am going to pray. I'm going to pray in these ways that there is a fruit that comes from this. Oh, that makes a difference. That will affect how we give and what we do and what we are seeing the, the, the results come from it. Right? And that brings us to question number three. Question number three, will you drop dead if you tell a lie? Answer is, maybe. <laughs> well, will you drop dead if you tell a lie? I mean, you know, you read this, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, we, we sort of chuckle about this, but, you know, think about this. When this happened, I mean, and, and by the way, the account of Ananias and Sapphira, it's, it's connected to our consideration of meeting physical needs because of the specific action that they took, right? They sold land and brought the money with the express purpose of meeting the needs of the poor, of those in need, needy people. And so from all outward appearances, they seemed to be equally concerned about those in need, just like Barnabas and the other believers, right? Ananias and Sapphira, so oh, we are also very concerned. And they brought this money. However, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead after each of them lie, as Peter states, to the Holy Spirit. And that verse 11 says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, I don't want to explain away or minimize the impact of lying just because we're not seeing people drop dead in our churches. Well, nobody's dropping dead. Maybe God doesn't mind if we lie. That's not the message, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. We may not state that out loud, but almost, I mean, functionally, isn't that what we're thinking? A little lying, and so many people lying. Maybe God's overlooking it. Nobody's dropping dead now. And there have been times when people have lied to protect others, right? During the Holocaust and other times, you know, you know of these stories where people lied they didn't tell the exact truth in order to protect somebody else. There are times when people may not speak the whole truth because it would have been cruel or destructive to say something you know, in its entirety. But from the time we learn to speak, right from that age, without having been trained, we learn how to tell lies. Or we, we, you know, you don't have to tell that little child, did you eat that candy? No, I didn't, no. 
Never saw it, right? Um, I, I mean, we learn to speak lies right from the time that we learn to speak. And we learn to speak in half-truths. And we know all sorts of people around us who lie. We even read the many accounts in the Bible of even the, the, the pillars of the faith, Abraham, David, Peter, they all lied pretty blatantly. Here's the crucial difference. So for anybody who thinks, oh, okay, maybe it's okay to lie. Here's the crucial difference. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, we read this. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for that land? Ananias and Sapphira were not filled with the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Satan had filled their hearts. Whatever their motivation was to keep some of the money that they were being, you know, whatever their motivation, they were being led by the devil and not by the Lord. Whatever they thought would be the outcome, they were not looking to glorify God, but rather themselves. They wanted to be seen of men to have been doing something, but their hearts were not where the Lord was asking them to be or what they were meant to be doing. And when they lied to Peter and the body of Christ, they weren't lying to men because Peter didn't build the church and Peter was not, and the believers were not who represented the church as such. They were lying to Jesus. They were lying to the Holy Spirit because the word as we've seen consistently is saying the building of the church, the establishment of the church, the work of the, the, this church was the continuing ministry of Jesus. When Peter points to the healings and the things that are taking place, he said, this is happening because of Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus that this lame man is walking. It is the Holy Spirit that is at work. So when Peter says to Ananias, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, he's once again pointing to the fact that it is the Holy Spirit, it is Jesus that is building the church, that is leading the church, that is in the front. So when Ananias and Sapphira walk in and say these things, they're not speaking to Peter, they're speaking to Jesus, they're speaking to the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter is pointing out. So we have to be very careful about our communications, that we would let our yes be yes, we would let our no be no. We would speak the truth in love. But even more important than trying to tame our tongue, oh, I better not say that, I better say this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that. Even more important than trying to tame our tongue, and James says, that's not, you're not going to be able to do it. No man can tame the tongue. It's a task that we will all fail at. We need to be filled with the word of God and the Holy Spirit, so that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. What will keep us from lying? The abundance of the word and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. What causes us to lie? When Satan fills our hearts. I'm not saying that we as children of God would be demon-possessed. I am saying 
that we are allowing the things of the world, the things of our flesh, and the things of the devil to come into our hearts, to occupy our minds, to start to fill us. And when that starts to fill us, what comes out is what's inside. What is in us comes out, and we lie. But when we are filled with God, with the word of God, with the presence of God, with the truth of God, when we open our mouths, that comes out. So we don't have to strive one way or the other. We just have to abide. It's not the actions of our hands and the words of our mouths. It's the attitude of our hearts and our resting in him. It's saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to abide in you. Even as we were speaking last week. When we do that, when we are filled in that way, when we are waiting on the Lord, then our goal is not for our actions to be seen and our words to be heard by men. Our goal is for our hearts to be revealed before God. Because the Bible says that the Lord who looks at the heart knows exactly what's going on. We can give generously, but our hearts may not be given to the Lord. We can not give generously, but our hearts may be given to the Lord, meaning we're giving according to what we're able. It is not about what is seen on the outside. Man looks at the outward appearance. And then Ananias and Sapphira, at least in some way, were looking for men to acknowledge their actions. God looks at the heart. God says, this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is what I want you to do. And when we are able to wait on him in that way, then we can respond to the Lord. So this morning, as we were talking about these, these, these truths, um, what I want to point out to you is that this early church, this church as it's getting founded, you know, I was mentioning last week, they, they explode. They go from 120 people in the upper room. They go from a few disciples to a larger group of disciples to finally a group of about 120 people in that upper room on the day of Pentecost. They go from that to 3,000 to 5,000, and they're just exploding in terms of the people that are being joined in, the people that are believing, the people that are coming together. And clearly, as a part of that large number of people, there are those in need. There may have been those that were struggling physically. There, there may have been those that were struggling physically. There may have been those that were struggling in relationships or in you know, something that was going on in their homes. There may have been those that were struggling mentally. In all those ways, there were needy people amongst them. And the Bible says that as the grace of God abounded, as the grace of God was given to the church, they were able to meet the needs. That included meeting physical needs because of the compassion, because of the care, because they would be willing to give generously, because they brought it in the way that they, they could multiply that, that, that offering, right? It, you know, the, the, the boy who brought his uh, two loaves and five fish, you know, it, it took Jesus multiplying it for the multitudes to be fed. 
And so that's the way in which God is speaking to us, which means that as we respond to this word this morning, what we are responding for, what we are responding to the Lord with is to say, Lord, give me a heart of compassion and care for those in need. Not give me a million dollars and I'll give away 900,000. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, God, give me a heart of compassion. Give me a heart of care. Help me to see those who are in need in whatever way they are in need and not overlook them. Help me to pay attention to your Holy Spirit. Help me to look at people and have your eyes, your heart, and your care for them. So we respond to the Lord by asking for a heart of compassion and care for those in need. And then we apply, we apply what we learn from these scriptures, not as methods. So it's not, okay, we're coming to the end of 2020, everybody sell everything that you have by the end of you know, December, by January 1st, bring in all your stuff. That's not the statement. That's not the application of this word. But the application of this word is that you would say to the Lord, Lord, what should I do? And for each one of us, that's going to look a little different. The application of this word, as you give, as you take action, is going to look a little different. And maybe you will be giving generously, not just to this church, but all around the world, you may be doing something. You may be impacting somebody. You may be praying, you may be helping, you may be counseling, you may be doing something to give in these ways and to reach out to those in need. Do it. Be obedient. Do what the Lord leads you to do, but do it. Take opportunity to ask the Lord for specific actions and say, Lord, what can I do? Who is it that I can reach out to? How can I be active in this way? And the Lord will show you. Respond. Be obedient. So, like I said, three questions, all of which the answers are no. But it's really up to you how you let the Lord lead you and guide you in this. And to say, Jesus, I'm a willing servant. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if all of us, the church as a whole, the church around the world is living with that attitude, I think there will be a big difference all around us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you that you show us grace so that we may abound in what you have instructed us in. And therefore, with that mind of Christ, with that way to see others with compassion and love and care. Father, I thank you that you help us to reach out to them and to bless them. I thank you that you cause us to prosper, not so that we may, Lord, uh, have material things and enjoy material things. I thank you that you, you do allow us to enjoy the pleasures of this world or the pleasures in this world. But I thank you, Lord, that more importantly, you prosper us so that we may be blessing to others so that we can help others, so that we can give. I thank you, Jesus, that you are causing us, Lord, to be the channel by which 
there is no need for poor people. That, Lord, you can help us to do that, to be open-handed, to be generous. Thank you, Jesus, for your reminders through your word. I thank you that your word, Lord, is very complete. It addresses all the areas of our life. And thank you especially, Lord, that it helps us to understand how the church was formed and what principles we need to take as a church ourselves. So, Lord, as we complete this year, as we go into the next, as we anticipate what you are doing and how you are leading and guiding and directing us, open the doors, Lord. Open the doors, show us the opportunities, and help us, Lord, to respond, to obey, to fulfill your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.